Hi, I'm Michael Moore. I'm one of the master prop makers for many of the Star Trek TV shows and movies, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The objective of Trek Untold has always been to celebrate those people who have contributed to Star Trek, but whose work does not get the same spotlight as the people in the opening credits. So far, these past eight episodes have all been about performers. That would be character actors, stunt performers, and a voiceover actor. But today, we've got our first guest who was never on screen, but their work was seen every week on many Star Trek TV shows, as well as a majority of the movies. Our guest today is Michael Moore, and no, I don't mean that Michael Moore. This Michael was responsible for the many props you've seen used in Star Trek movies and TV shows. His first Trek film was in fact the fourth film in the series, The Voyage Home, and he worked on all the original series films after that, as well as the Next Generation films, and also spent some time on the very first J.J. Abrams Star Trek film. His work has also been seen in the next-gen TV series, as well as Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise. But today our focus is purely on the movies, because there's a lot to talk about with just those alone. Going into all the detail about the many different TV series he worked on, oof, that's definitely worth revisiting at another time. Mr. Moore isn't known just for his work on Trek, however, as his resume touches nearly every major geeky franchise around. Michael has made props or been involved in the prop-making process for films like Masters of the Universe, Beetlejuice, Back to the Future 2 and 3, the Beverly Hills Cop and Darkman series, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, Hook, Batman Forever, The Hobbit movies, and so many more. And just like with the Star Trek TV shows, we could easily fill tons more episodes just discussing his work on everything else he's done outside of Star Trek, but really that's a different show entirely. Now I do have to level with all you listeners today because this was a challenging interview for me. Unlike my other guests so far whose work is definitely more accessible to look at, it's much more mysterious to figure out what props Michael made and what his role was in that process. One of the hardest parts for me was knowing what to even ask him, to be honest, because there isn't a ton of info about him specifically or the things that he worked on, but really that's what the point of the show is all about. To get to the bottom of what it is that a prop maker does, what exactly qualifies as a prop, what he worked on, and what Michael's memories about Star Trek are. This is one of those episodes where, despite doing as much research as possible beforehand, I still came into it practically blind as a bat. Thankfully, I found Mr. Moore to be extremely patient, generous, informative, and very easy to chat with. Those are great qualities to have in general, and more so to have while working in a high-stress environment like prop-making for TV and film. So if you've ever wanted to learn anything about how props are made, and what even qualifies as a prop, and that might sound silly, but you're going to be surprised to find out what actually is or isn't when it comes to Star Trek, then this episode is going to be a real eye-opener for you. And before we begin this week's show, I wanted to update you guys on some news unrelated to this week's guest. Trek Untold just launched their merchandise store on Teespring, and we've got shirts, stickers, tote bags, mugs, and a whole bunch more. If you want to take a peek, go ahead and visit teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold, or check out our social media pages, of course, because we'll have some listings over there for it. We've got two designs up right now. One of them is the main logo for this show, which you've seen across all the various platforms you're listening to, as well as the badge logo that we use, the round one, that you see on all of our social media. I'm going to be making more designs to add in the coming weeks, so stay tuned, of course, to our social media channels to hear all about those. 
Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. All one word, no spaces. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering us your support, thank you for your help. Most of all, if you can't support us financially, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. This helps more people find out about the show and helps spread awareness of Trek Untold. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people, but you'll hear more about them a little bit later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining me on the other side of the line, we've got a man who's been working on Star Trek projects for over 30 years, as well as tons of other movies and TV shows. You've probably seen his work, but you might not know his name just yet. Today, we're going to change that. So joining us is Michael Moore. Michael, how are you today? I'm fine. Let's get going. Let's answer all the questions that everybody wants to know. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, exactly. You know, as I was just telling you before, uh, you know, I'm pretty ignorant about a lot of what it is that prop makers do, and I'm sure a lot of listeners as well. They might have some ideas, but I think there's a lot of things they don't understand. Uh, there's probably some confusion about things as well. So I'm hoping we can really break down what it is that you do as a prop master and prop maker on all these shows and films you've worked on. But uh, again, today our focus is going to be on just the Star Trek movies, and there's plenty to talk about with just those. So uh, let's let's go ahead and dive on in. And I'd like to ask you the first question I ask all my guests. And that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Uh, that would be the original series with uh, Shatner. And I was alive way back then. So uh, as far as that, I used to watch it with my father, um, who really would not say that he was in the science fiction, but he kind of liked it. So it, it, was, it, it was a good experience back then, you know, because it was really the only show except for the really late, late show movies and stuff with all the, you know, Empire of the Ants type of thing and, and all the 50s movies. So it's, it's so, start, so start, the original series is the first point that uh, I got uh, into science fiction. Even. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up, who your parents were, and what little Michael wanted to be when he grew up. Well, okay, so I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and then at the ripe old age of two, my parents decided to move our entire family to Los Angeles. Uh, my father was, uh, a, uh, truck driver by trade, um, and actually used to out here, they used to have a thing called RTD and now it's called Metro, which is, you know, the, uh, bus system. Uh, and then later in his life, not that much later, he started, um, working for Universal Studios driving uh, trucks for the film industry. My mother was a, uh, was a housewife, you know, and all the normal things that your mother takes care of, which is a lot. My original lifelong dream was I was going to work in special effects makeup. And I actually did work in special effects makeup in the beginning of, of my career in the film industry. Uh, I just decided that that was just too much contact with actors and directors and everybody else so i started branching off into doing costumes and props but i you know no matter what no matter where you are in 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 the industry you're still going to be interacting with all those people anyway it's just 
different degrees. Um, you know, so so basically, you know, like one of my first films I worked on was uh, Reanimator and uh, Troll and a bunch of other stuff, Roger Corman films. Uh, just like a lot of people who were out here in Los Angeles. Uh, so, you know, I, I started off, you know, like everybody else. That's really interesting that at a young age, even you were thinking about doing makeup and behind the scenes work and special effects. What really drew you towards that? Uh, well, my favorite movie actually was War of the Worlds um, and then Forbidden Planet. Um, so it, it really wasn't, you know, I wasn't really drawn at that point to, to doing makeup and stuff like that. It was more into the science fiction. And, and, and I just love the, you know, the look of a lot of things in, in those movies. Um, and I was fascinated by, you know, how can they make a, a model float through the air and then suddenly have, you know, laser beams and stuff coming out of the, you know, on the Martian war machine out of the top or out of the side pieces and stuff. I think I saw an interview uh, that you did on your YouTube channel, Propology, in fact, where you talked about how growing up you built a lot of models and that kind of thing. Did you ever see yourself doing like model work for films and TV or, or how did that kind of affect what you were doing and wanted to do? Well, well, it, it gave me a foundation on understanding, uh, you know, when you're building models, as far as model kits, you know, but there's a structure and a reason why things are built the way they are. So that was helping me understand that. But I was always building something in my garage. I mean, basically, when I was younger in, in elementary school, uh, you know, when my parents would ask me what I want for Christmas or my birthday, I was always going, oh, well, I, you know, I, I'd like some tools. So even at that age, I was asking, because my, my father liked to tinker around with stuff. Uh, later on in life, he was making furniture and stuff for the family and, and, and uh, things like that. But, but basically, I like working with my hands. So understanding how a model kit goes together. I always got frustrated, though, with those. You know, I, I basically uh, ended up just going, oh, okay, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm going to build it my way then. If it isn't working, I'm going to build it my way. And that kind of started the, you know, the idea of, of kit bashing before it was called kit bashing. You know, I would start making, instead of making it a Chevy, I would start taking and putting parts in wherever I wanted or I thought it was looking, you know, the way I envisioned it rather than, it's not a car anymore. It's a spaceship. Uh, you know, things like that. So what was your first professional gig in Hollywood to do, I guess, in this case, any kind of makeup work or special effects work or prop work? Well, believe it or not, uh, my first gig was I was working, going in on weekends, like Friday afternoons and weekends, to a company called CPC who did the uh, Pillsbury Doughboy commercials, the Snuggle toilet bath stuff, you know, toilet paper and stuff like that, all these different commercials. And I came in uh, just to mess around and to help them out wherever they wanted me to do it. So my first venture into actually doing something physically for a film and or television was making uh, Carnation instant, not instant, uh, condensed milk fly through the air on as it's rotating, it's flying for a, uh, a commercial in Mexico uh, for the condensed milk. Huh. Um, and then 
right after that, we were also doing uh, Universal Studios was just revamping their their studio tour. And with that same group, I ended up helping install the Buck Rogers part of the tour, doing some of the wiring on the inside and what have you, you know. So it, there's a lot of stuff that, that I did here and there that I'm, I'm probably not even remembering. Oh, there's a lot to remember. Oh, yeah, there, there is. Because once again, in some cases, when, you, when you're starting out, you're, you could be working on 10 different shows in the same day because you're making this part for that part of that show and that part for that show. So it just depends. And unfortunately, you know, to, we're going to try and like really stay focused as much as we can on just Star Trek stuff, but it's so hard sure. not to because, again, just looking at your resume, it's got Gremlins, Rocky, Beverly Hills Cop, Masters of the Universe, Beetlejuice, uh, Total Recall, Darkman, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I mean, I can just go on and on. And I'm, at the start of the show, listeners are going to hear me list as much as I can. But yeah, no, it's so crazy. And I really wish we had more time to just talk about all those other things besides Trek. But I do want to ask about one thing before we do dive in. Uh, and that's, you mentioned working with Roger Corman, and I'm a big fan of his work. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your time working with him. Well, he wasn't, most of the time he wasn't around <laughs> when we were when we were working on his stuff. Um, but Roger Corman, let's see, we did The Troll. We did uh, Ghoulies. We did uh, uh, Munchies. You know, there's there's films that I've worked on that I didn't find out until after we were done that it was a Roger Corman film. Um, <laughs> That's usually how he rolls, isn't it? Oh, in some cases, yes. I mean, because in some cases you're working on a bunch of different stuff in one shop, and you have one group of people over here working digitally on that. And the, you know, there's uh, I believe the other film I didn't actually work on it, but it was worked on at the shop that it was at at the time, which was Chopping Mall. And that was that was at Bob Short Productions, way 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 when I was first starting out, and and that was kind of a really weird, you know, it's robots killing people <laughs> in a shopping mall. And like I said, I you know did a, did the Reanimator, actually applying makeup for for the zombies, and you know on and on and on and on. It's just like I said, there's 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 things that that fall through the cracks of memory that if they aren't for me, if, if they if they don't, when somebody mentions it and explains something to me, you know, I have like Rolodex in the back of my head, and oh that, okay, here's here's the here's the story or here's what I remember about that one, you know, that's that's kind of how how my mind works because I have to category categorize everything in my head to be able to you know keep track of it. Oh, yeah, totally understand. Yeah, look, again, just looking at all the work you've done, I mean, I can imagine trying to remember every single story is going to be near impossible. So now I want to start getting into the Trek talk. And first uh-huh. things first, I really want to clearly define what it is that you do. Because, you know, for me, as someone who's an outsider, and with so many different elements that go into production, uh, I guess I ultimately wanted to determine first what a prop is. Because I imagine that some things could blur those lines. Like, for example, uh, where does one draw the line between, let's say, like a piece of wardrobe versus a prop on an outfit? Like wharf sash or a communicator badge or maybe a background element that a set decorator would be responsible for as opposed to the prop department coming in to make something like buttons on a door, that kind of thing. So, uh, Michael, how do we define for TV and film what a prop actually is and what you would handle? Okay. Well, straight off the bat, my, my actual title would be Master Prop Maker, not Prop Master. The Prop Master is the person who is hired to oversee all props that are either manufactured, rented, and used on set. 
So I, as, as someone who would be the manufacturing side and maintaining those props. So uh, with the experience I, I have in, in the field, I would be a master prop maker or a prop maker as is the, the common term. So as far as props, a prop is usually anything that you hold, interact with, and can be a specialty. I mean, like like wharf sash, okay? If it's being used, taken off on set and used, you know, and set on a table, then it's a prop. But when he's just walking around in costume with the sash on, it's a costume piece. So a prop maker actually did make his sash, but it is then handed over to the wardrobe department to deal with unless there's a specific shot or storyline that incorporates him taking it off and or interacting it with his hands and other people uh, on set. And, and, you know, there's like the communicator. Okay, the communicator originally, uh, I believe, was handled by the prop, the, the, uh, the design team at, at uh, Paramount and a set of prop makers to work out the design, how to make it perfect with the art department. Um, but then it was turned over to the wardrobe department because it was a costume piece at that point. Once it was settled and decided what it was going to be. And there's a lot of leeway between the different departments depending on what the item is. Uh, as far as the communicators, generally speaking, the wardrobe department, if they needed additional communicators, they would call me up specifically from the wardrobe department saying what they needed. Um, but I could also, that same day, get a call from the prop department or from set dressing saying, hey, we need X amount of communicators for, you know, for this next episode. So it's, you know, there's a, once again, there's a lot of lines that are very specific, but there are also, you know, fuzzy lines depending on what you're doing with the piece. Yeah, for sure. It seems like it. And I think that's going to be basically the story of me today is me trying to stumble through this interview and think about what actually is a prop, what you'd be working on versus something that isn't. So hopefully I don't make too many dumb mistakes and ask too many dumb questions, but the day is early. We'll see. Yeah, no problem. There, is no, <laughs> there are, are no dumb questions, just dumb answers. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm going to get any of those from you today. I think they're all going to be really great to hear. <laughs> to kind of paraphrase what you're saying, uh, it sounds like that, you know, and as most people know, a TV Making a TV show, making a movie, it's a very collaborative process with a lot of crossover between departments. Um, so in that case, I want to kind of, I guess, break down what the entire process would be for prop making. So start to finish, where does it go? Where does it end up? And how does the final product become a thing? Okay. So generally speaking, when you're, when you're working on a show, you have a designer or an illustrator or both. That depends on the, how they title it. Um, who comes out and designs the, the piece, for instance, a, uh, a phaser. So somebody, so they've decided they're going to ha need a, a new phaser. So that illustrator or designer would then sketch up usually two or three versions minimum and take that to one of the meetings that they have with the producers, the director, and so on, you know, all the heads of the departments. And discuss things and look at them and go, I, I, I like the aspect of that one, of the front end of that one, but I like the back end of this one and the middle of that one. 
So in many cases, that person doing the drawings would then take back that information back to his, his office and either redraw it or in some cases, because on Star Trek, we usually never had any more than six days to build anything. So that is, so that that usually started the day that we got the drawing, or in some cases we have to do it as little, little as overnight. In many cases, it just depends on the prop and what what episode it was, and because things change all the time on set. You know, a, a director decides he doesn't like how this scene looks, or he wants the prop to do something else. So. But going back to the process, so you have a designer, he designs it, he puts as many notes as he can about the prop, writes it down in many cases, in some cases not. He hands that to the prop master. The prop master then contacts the shop or person who is going to be building that for him for this episode. At that point, he explains what it is, what how he sees it operating for the scene, and then he takes it over to that that prop maker, and they go over it and have you know there's you know 500 questions and so on. Um, on Star Trek, we were very lucky that we could, as as the, the the manufacturing side, actually call the designer and say, so what were you really thinking about this? Because in some cases, you know, when you're dealing with with the prop master who's thinking about 500 other things will give you the reader's digest version of what it is and what it needs to do. Um, in many cases, we had set guidelines for different races in Star Trek. You know, we had color schemes, we had design elements and so on. So uh, our relationships with, with what the prop master was is if you have any other questions regarding design aspects, give the designer a call and, and work it out with them. Um, once that's done, we would uh, make up the master because it really wasn't time to make up a prototype and then and then go into you know a bunch of changes and everything else on Star Trek. Uh, in, in the early years of Next Generation, there was a little bit more talking going on. But as time went on, uh, you know, we were trusted a lot more as far as since we've already been working on the show for so many years, we understand the aesthetics and the color schemes and so on. And once again, talking to the, the, uh, the designer uh, made it very very simple to get it to where they wanted it. So we, after we were done sculpting it, as we saw it, we would then, in some cases, contact the prop master. And if he had time, he would come out and visit us and look at what we had so far. But most of the time, his schedule didn't allow that. So you know, and there wasn't like the internet, so you, could, you couldn't just take a picture of it uh, and send it over the internet or over your phone, really. You know, once again, uh, phones were, were uh, just, uh, cell phones were just really starting to really pick up steam because of Star Trek. 
And back then, the average cell phone weighed about 35 pounds and was as big as your head. Yes, just the battery pack, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, we would just, you know, we would make the part, uh, decide what we were going to do with it based on how many copies they needed for the episode. So in some cases, some of the pieces we would create would be a one and only ever piece. So you would make it, you would finish it, put your lights and stuff into it, and send it to set, and that's the last time you'd ever see it. Other pieces where they'd go, oh, this is the main weapon of the Bajorans, so we're going to need, you know, 20 or 30 of these. We're going to need, you know, and, and as things go on in the series, we're going to need more, more, you know, as things go. So uh, we would end up making sure that we had the master, the sculpture, the master sculpture of the piece so that we could um, make more copies of it later. And then, of course, once the shows are done, uh, most props and, and everybody who's, who's seen Star Trek is like, hey, and they're on Voyager ring. Hey, isn't that the prop from Next Generation? <laughs> and it is because 90% of all the props from Next Generation went to DS9. And then Voyager started up and so they divvied up you know, some of those props that they had taken from Next Gen and a few from DS9 after, as, as it was starting out, and put them into Voyager. It's the reason why, you know, the question is, well, why do they have these phasers, you know, in the, in the whatever quadrant it is on Voyager? And, you know, the, the excuse we always give is, well, all the designs for everything is in the computer, and they have a, you know, with the replicator, you can make all that stuff. See, you know, so any, anyone... Who's in Starfleet can you know make their ship you know retro if they wanted to. <laughs> I like that answer. But but generally that's it. You know what, once we were done with it, uh, making the pieces, we would deliver them the set. And, and as I said, it it could be anywhere from from overnight to six days because we only had an eight day sh- shooting schedule for each episode. Yeah, I heard it was pretty common for you to actually be on the set like almost every day delivering a new batch of props. Oh, yes. And in some cases, babysitting the props there. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into our first Star Trek film that you worked on. That's Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which was released in 1986. Uh, so, Michael, can you tell us how you ended up working on Star Trek IV? Um, well, it was basically, uh, and to be honest with you, I don't even remember exactly what it was that I was working on. It was probably sanding something before it went to paint. I just don't, I, I, I honestly don't remember on that particular film. I mean, my, my clear recollection of, of stuff as far as films started in, in generations. Mm, okay. And, 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 and I don't know why, why anything from generations back as far as films are concerned that I don't really remember anything that I worked on. As far as next generation, DS9 Voyager, it, I could probably tell you what anything and everything was because for some reason that's locked into my brain. And from generations forward, it's all locked in my brain. I, I don't know, maybe I hit my head one day or something and, <laughs> and, and lost some of it. But in, in general, and once again, like I said, 
the way my brain works is, you know, it's the Rolodex. So unless I am looking at something, I'm going, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that thing right there, yeah. Well, that that was made out of this, and you know, it it becomes one of those, you know. I guess it's uh, uh you know, uh, I get to choose, uh, pick and choose what I what I remember and what I don't. I don't know because once again, I did not work on every single prop, right? In 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 the films out or on the shows. Um, in many cases for the shows, I was like the shop foreman for a lot of that stuff, as well as possibly, you know, in many cases, the owner and one of the guys in the shop working on stuff. Right. But in, for, for certain pieces, I could I can go over and tell you how certain things were made, whether I made it or not, because I was supervising that particular project. Because once again, when we we're doing like on uh, Next Generation, we may have 12 things to build. And there's four people building it all. So in some cases, like you're taking those two, you're taking those two, you're taking that, and you're taking those three, whatever it is, you know. So it's like I said, it's I I am a cog in the in the mechanism to produce Star Trek. All right. Well, let's see if we can jog your memory a little bit with just some general thoughts about the movies and your sure. time working on them, and if we can, you know, if we have stories about specific props, we'll definitely get them out of you somehow <laughs> by hook or by crook. We'll find them, Michael. Uh huh. <laughs> But so yeah, so Star Trek Four. Uh, I guess your first time again. You must just been very excited to just be working on a Star Trek movie. Period. Like when you first got the prop and you saw that it was a Star Trek thing, did your eyes just light up? Um, you know, at that point in my life, I I was kind of excited about working on anything, and I you know I just I love making things. Like I said, I, I I'm, I'm not sure which which things back then that I worked on, and to be honest, it probably was something very minuscule comparatively to moving forward with the different movements. You know, as time went on, I got more and more involved in different aspects. But but in general, okay, to answer the que- the original question, which was, how did I get my jobs, right? Yep. How normally most of the jobs I have gotten throughout my entire career is word of mouth. I'm usually known as the guy who can work with almost anybody. Uh, I don't, I tend not to complain too much about working on whatever it is because it's working. You know, I'm working on a show. So what the prop master or art director has their vision, I'm there to facilitate their vision coming true. Most of the work I've, I've gotten throughout my entire career has been word of mouth from other people I've worked with. And, uh, you know, usually I'll, after I'm already working on a show, is when they'll go, hey, do you have a portfolio we can look at? <laughs> okay, well, you've already given me the job, but sure. You know, and I do, you know, I haven't updated my portfolio in probably 25 years um, because, once again, most of the work I've, done for different shows and so on are all word of mouth and recommendations from others. So jumping ahead now to Star Trek V, uh, I do have a few questions about some specific props. Let's see if we can get some answers today. Okay. I think really for me, like the most iconic prop out of Star Trek V is Spock's anti-gravity boots. So again, this is one of those instances. Would this be something that your team will be working on or would this be something that a different department would handle? Well, I believe that would be wardrobe on that particular case, except for 
the pair that they have stuck to the, the locker because they probably had to go to the prop department who would then would have had one of their guys grind out the bottom and put install magnets so they could go, you know, it's all in the boot, you know, and they stuck it to, you know. So that'd be the stunt boots there, essentially. Well, it, it's it's at that at that moment, since she's handling it and sticking it to the wall, it's now a prop. But when the people are wearing it, it's a costume. Oh, I think this one for sure has got to be you guys. Uh, I'm hoping you remember this scene when they're all at the campfire and Spock has his marshmallow dispenser. Uh, do you remember anything about that? No, <laughs> actually, <laughs> it, except for that I thought was it was strange that there was a marshmallow dispenser, <laughs> unless it was some type of like you know. For, for me, I was like, is that a replicate, a miniature replicator for making uh, <laughs> marshmallows? <laughs> And that thing did pretty well. They actually, I don't know if you remember, uh, there actually was a craft merchandise tie-in. They made like a yes. mini one you could mail away and get in your own at home. Yes, I do remember that. I, I believe, and I may be wrong, and, and of course, people in your comments below, your, your, when, when, you know, after this is published, um, and, and I'm fine with people correcting me, but I believe that that marshmallow uh, dispenser was made uh, was either made by Greg Jean or Modern Props. Mm, all right, um, but I'm not positive on on, on that because once again, lots of people work on the shows. So, and depending on your prop master, things may be spread out across the universe, where each each little person or company is building one item. So jumping ahead to Star Trek VI, which was the last movie with the entire original cast, uh, and that was kind of like, uh, I guess, a bit, of a bit of a rougher movie to make since Star Trek V hadn't done as well. The budget was, I believe, the same exact number as V was. Do you remember with the budgetary restrictions, anything being more difficult for your group? Well, on Star Trek in general, depending on... The movies usually had better, better budgets, um, but not always. Um... And, and when things were just suddenly thrown in, uh, and, and that happens a lot on, on, on movies as well as TV shows, some of those props, I, I believe they, they actually had a pretty good budget on that one, and, and stuff was you know, distributed around. Uh, I don't think there was any really big problems with that. Um, you know, Greg Jean made some of those, some of those uh, props for the show as well as working on the ship. I, I don't re recall there being any issues with, ha you know, having money issues, you know, with, with arguments about things. But then again, I wasn't that high up on the food chain, you know, at, at that point in, uh, that was 89. Yeah. So that was, that's a while ago. Uh, <laughs> up, up until about next generation i was i was pretty low on the food food chain in, in in the shops so what were the kind of responsibilities you would have around that time period uh i would probably be doing like casting uh or sanding what most people don't understand about prop making is is sanding something is about 75 percent of your entire time doing anything uh because if you're prepping something for paint, you have to sand it. After you've cast your part, you have to go in and clean the seam and possibly fill air bubbles with, with Bondo or, 
or whatever you're going to use to fill them. And then you have to sand it to blend it in. And then you're going to put putty over top of that. So you're going to sand it all over again. <laughs> um, and then you're going to, you're, you're going to prime and paint your piece. And once you've primed your piece, you're probably going to go back uh, and have to reapply some more spot putty. You know, the, it's, it's red spot, uh, red spot body filler, uh, which is just really, you know, really thin and, and light uh, filler material. So you go and sand that down, then you prime it lightly again, and then you go into your paint cycles. But mo most of the stuff in the early days, as far as anything Star Trek, I started off doing a lot of sanding and then a lot more sanding. That, that's, that's basically what they would call a lab tech or what we used to call it, which was we were all resin monkeys. <laughs> that's a good term. And there's a lot of people who hate that, <laughs> that term. But it basically, you, you know, you were put... In, into a situation where you needed to cast all the parts, clean up the parts, and then hand it off in some cases to somebody else to either finish painting it, or you would hand it off to somebody to put electronics into, and so on. And I don't want to make this, you know, the way I'm uh, describing all these things here, make it sound like this is a Michael-centric project, like only Michael Moore did this. And, you know, as oh, I mentioned, no. this is around, this is a whole team working. And so uh, I'd actually like to give credit due where it should be. Uh, can you tell us who else was working with you back in those days and who else continued to work with you uh, beyond, you know, the movies and the other series? Well, a lot of them, I just don't remember their names <laughs> in some cases. It's a lot of people, but, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But there was, there was, you know, there's Greg Jean who's out there. Who, who did a lot of props as well as a lot of the miniature work for, for the different Trek movies. Um, there is uh, Max Cervantes. Uh, there is Bear Burge, uh, Wendell Phillips, um, Scott Rodine, Bob, Bob uh, Banyan, Steve Horch. It's just, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And I, uh, Right now, you know, a lot of them aren't, aren't really hitting me in the, in the head for coming up with them. I, I'll, you know, basically as we go through this, I'll probably drop in other names as, as they come up. There, there's just so many people who are involved in each and every one of these films. And, and once again, different shops with a different set of crew members working on specific things. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. 
you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder what camera is that, or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. We use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so let's jump into working on Star Trek Generations now, since I know this is really more of your bread and butter type project here. Uh, and I think the first thing I want to ask about is phasers. And I've seen on your Propology YouTube channel, you talk a lot about the different types of phasers there were. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the phaser work that you guys did in Generations? Uh, and I guess this kind of gives us a brief overview of the phaser itself and its evolution. Okay, well, the, the first phaser for the next generation crew was the Dustbuster phaser and the Cricket phaser. Uh, the Dustbuster phaser was, you know, it looks like a, one of those dust cluster things from that time period for vacuuming your couch off. Um, and that's what it was coined as. Um, I actually like the design. It's, you know, different. It's not just another hand weapon. Uh, the cricket phaser, little tiny bar of soap, you know, squirt, squirt out of your hand if you get it wet. <laughs> your, hand, or your hands are sweaty. And then from there, we went to the... Uh, the uh, third season Cobra Head Phaser. And then from there, we went to the fourth season Cobra Head Phaser, which was reworked. And we were kind of phasing out the Cricket Phaser because it was so tiny. Let's see. Then we went to the Boomerang Phaser, uh, which there were three three prototypes of uh, for the producers, producers to decide which version they wanted to go with. And then from there... Uh, we went into doing the dolphin, and that was for the last episode of of Voyager, which ended up becoming, with a few changes, the Nemesis Phaser, and then so on, you know. And then there's all the alien, you know, phasers and/or disruptors. But for 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 generations, for generations, it was kind of a um, how do I put it? It was it was kind of different in that we had to go kind of retro as well as as current for, for next generation cast so you know we, we did some of the stuff uh, when when and, and see this is where I'm gonna some of the stuff I can I can geek with okay and some stuff I can't there, there's there's people out there that know more than I will ever know and can quote you line for line for the, for the shows, just like the Star Wars guys out there. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Okay, so for the original cast in Generations, they took they actually still had a lot of that stuff in the warehouse from that time, so they were able to use that in the beginning of that of that film. As things went on, when they went into the Nexus 
uh, when Kirk Hard was in the Nexus with with Kirk, um, and you see him sitting at his desk uh, in his his home in the Nexus. Behind him is a wall of weapons. Now, some of those weapons are next-gen weapons. Some of those weapons are uh, movie weapons, you know, different er earlier movie weapons. Um, we did uh, a version of a tricorder that was like supposed to be between the Trek six versions they were using, and then the uh, the next gen version. So we we kind of mish mis mishmashed some stuff together to kind of update it a little bit. We actually even had a a real. Uh, color TV screen in that tricorder because they were supposedly going to do something with it. But I, I think I'll, a lot of stuff got cut out of, out of that movie that we had done. Um, we made an updated version of the, uh, the uh, original cast communicator from the films uh, that had a different look to it and a, and a different screen. Well, I think the real prop that a lot of people remember the most from Generations is Data's emotion chip. Was that something that you guys did? Okay, well, the emotion, that, that's what's funny. Okay, the emotion chip for Next Generation TV show was different than the one for Generations. The one for Next Generation was a little tiny chip uh, that was uh, a piece of brass that had some squiggly lines on it that was cloisonated or filled with, with colored epoxy. And it, and it probably couldn't have been any more than about a, 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 it was a hexagon shape. And I don't think it was any larger than about a quarter inch. And that's one of the pieces I, I had done for next generation. For generations, they decided to, they wanted to update that. So one of the thoughts was, is, was that the emotion chip that is implanted in data was put into another housing of some kind and then implanted in his head. That's that's how it was explained to me on set when I went, well, that doesn't look anything like the one from next year. <laughs> uh, but it didn't matter, you know. Um, and, and once again, some of the tools that they're using uh, in, in generations is tools from next gen, because obviously it's, the, you know, that timeline. So that, that particular uh, a prop was updated from the the previous version, so there was a, the, the the continuity there was like ah nobody's going to remember what it looked like anyway. And in reality, everybody knew what, what it looked like because it's Star Trek fans, right? It, 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 and it happens all the time. You know, sometimes they just go, you know what, it is what it is, and and you kind of have to roll with that punch. But it really depends on you know what your uh, you know what your perspective is as as a Trek fan, let alone as a prop maker for said uh, franchise. You basically have to learn to, to understand that you don't own it and you're not married to it. So what they are asking you to do, you either have to go, okie doke, if that's what you want it to be, that's what it's going to be, which is what you know I've been doing all these years, is okay, no problem. I don't argue with, with the powers that be about what is and what isn't Star Trek because Star Trek is whatever they make it. You know, from my, my, my point of view, 
I look at every single uh, series and every single, basically every incarnation of Star Trek is its own series. Whether it connects to the other ones, I, I, I try and accept them and, and enjoy them for, for what they are as that particular version. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And that's also a good lesson to just not being attached to something. And I think that's something a lot of commercial artists, uh, especially early on in their careers, have trouble detaching themselves from their projects. I can imagine that can be, especially with something like Star Trek that you have a lot of love for, uh, it can be probably difficult to say no sometimes to ideas, but it's what you have to do well, in, in this field. No, I actually never say no. I, 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 in some cases, will bring up, well, that's not how it was here. If this is what you want, that's fine. I'll do it that way. But if you want the you know, continuity connection, then it's something different. And, and in some cases, they go, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. But, you know, nine times out of ten, it's like, yeah, this is what they decided. Okay, let's move forward. Yep. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, once again, if, if it's your art, then yes, you know, stick to your guns. It's your art. But when you're trying to create something from someone else, that that is theirs, then you just do that. So going back to uh, some of the props that you guys did for the movies, uh, I want to jump ahead to First Contact and again, discussing Data because he got a lot of cool stuff in all the movies. And I want to know if you guys were responsible for the scene where Data gets that skin graft on his arm. And the thing I'm talking about in particular is when they show his hair standing on end. So I just want to ask if that was you guys at all. No, no, no. That, that was, that was makeup, the makeup department and the actual special effects department because i don't remember I, I remember talking to somebody about that whether that was cgi showing the hairs go up and i believe it was but i i don't remember exactly what what the conversation ended in oh, yeah. that's still but a very I, impressive effect though i i think that still holds up to today oh yeah no i i really did like that whole uh that 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 particular movie was an amazing rendition of star trek so what are some of the standout props that you remember working on for first contact well let's see uh the functional hero uh boomerang phasers three different versions of the phaser rifles all the different tricorders we made for it you know all the federation tricorders the mark nines and the mark tens and then of course there's the you know there's we did the uh the mechalith that Worf has that he cuts off the Borg arm with and then ties up his suit so it doesn't leak anymore. Well, did your team work on any of the Borg pieces at all? Not on, not on first contact that I recall. Um, well, the, only, the the one Borg part that we did work on was if you recall when Picard is digging in the Borg to take out the communicator uh, out of out of his. The, the board basically had a communicator on its chest, which was one of the original communicators that had electronics in it. As you know, it was an exploded uh, one. And then he digs into the chest to get the, the I think it was called the transponder or something, which was a cigarette lighter with lights in it and and dressed up. <laughs> from what I remember, I don't remember if we made that particular piece. I do remember us making the the communicator that was exploded from being uh, assimilated. How often would you guys make something from scratch versus repurposing or kitbashing something that already existed? It depended on the design that we were given. 
in some cases, uh, some of the designers would go, hey, this gave me an inspiration, it's this. And then you go, oh, okay. Uh, and then in some cases, we would go out and buy it and go, oh, this is too small for us to work with. And then we would recreate it larger within, you know, with our own twist to it, you know, within the, the, the realm of the uh, how it's supposed to work. So around the time that Star Trek Insurrection came out, I believe you also uh, started HMS Productions with Steve Horch. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, we had already we had already started uh, we had started working on um, Voyager at that time, but when um, Insurrection came around. So what made you want to jump out and make your own business? Well, you know, in some cases you get restless working at the same place with the same people. Sometimes, for me. I think it was mainly that it was time for me to move on from from the shop I was at, you know, and, and more of like, well, well I'm going to make you know, a name for myself. Well, I already had the name for myself. It didn't matter where I was at. Uh, you know, it's it's I think it was mainly that it just, you know, it was just time for me to move on because um, I've worked at, you know, I've worked at a lot of different shops over the years and uh, Star Trek has followed me from 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 shop to shop, and in some cases, it's you know coming to me through just the wardrobe department until other people find out that I'm uh, outside of the shop that we were working at. So you know, it just it's it was just time for me to go. All right, and, and I know you and Hort, uh, Steve Hort worked together on Insurrection, uh, and so I'm kind of curious what you remember from working on that film since that one. Uh, it seemed like it's a lot more rural kind of props, if you will, instead of more of the futuristic stuff that we see on screen in other Star Trek movies. For Insurrection, obviously we were making, uh, doing some of the, the phaser rifles and the phasers, you know, doing a few things here and there on, as far as that's concerned, and, and tricorders, you know, because that's all the staples, you know, throughout all the different series anyway. They kind of That's where the cohesive portion of it is. Yep. Um, but we were also doing some of the tools for the uh, medical bay for the sonas. I think that's what they're, they were called, right? The yeah, sona. the sona. Yep. Um, okay. We were making different things like the tooth extractors. Jeez. Uh, I mean, there's just a, a lot of weird, you know, like the little pair of pliers and stuff like that. We made um, uh, the sona pads, big ones, small ones. We, we even had to custom make little mirrors that were in the shape of the sona pad. <laughs> but in miniature, that that uh, oh, who was who was the main? Um, oh, uh, oh, I can barely pronounce his yeah. name. It's like uh, yeah, Murray Abraham. Oh yeah, we can we can just say that if you want. You can just say F. Murray Abraham if you want to just do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and was it like Rufio or Rufo or something like Ru- that? Yeah, Rufo's. something like that. I always okay. Ruf- well, Rufio's anyway, from Hook. That's so, a different movie entirely. So, so Mr. Abrams, <laughs> um, during a scene where they've stretched his face again. Uh, he has like this little mirror to see what he looks like. That was a that was a throw in scene that oh I should be able to look at myself in a mirror. Oh okay, so we have make a futuristic mirror, which was fine. So one of the things I remember the most about Insurrection is Worf's bazooka, and it's like one of the weirdest Star Trek weapons I think I've seen. Uh, did you guys work on that one? No, that actually was a different shop. Uh, as as well as we also didn't do the Sona weapon, the the, the actual pistol or the rifle. Um, later on, we had to recreate them for some other, some ex- exhibitions and so on. But other than that, 
those particular pieces we did not make. So moving ahead to Star Trek Nemesis, the last of the next gen movies, uh, I think that's probably like the only Trek movie that has a poster that actually has a prop in it. Uh, and that's Shinzon's dagger, which is very critical to the plot of the movie. And it's also a really cool scene uh, when we first meet him where he cuts his hand open to give some blood to be tested. Uh, did you guys work on Shinzon's dagger? No, that actually was a store. I, sh- I shouldn't say store bot, but I should say is that's a Gil Hibbins knife uh, that uh, was one of his standard knives that he was, um, was, was selling at the time that the blade had been on the hero had been heated up and it ballooned and just all of those colors. I, I don't know if you could actually see it in the, in the film. I don't remember, but basically the, the design the color changes on the blade and stuff were then later created on, on other copies of it with paint. But that was, but that basically that particular knife was actually a Gil Hibbins knife. I had heard in that movie that the director wanted things to be a little bit more realistic and darker toned. Uh, and I believe the prop master in that movie was Russell Bobbitt. Uh, do you remember him talking about that, that affecting any of the stuff that you guys did? No, actually. Uh, you know, at, at the time for Nemesis, we didn't get any scripts or anything like that when we were doing stuff for Russell Bobbitt. Basically, Russell came to us with specific props he wanted us to build uh, and or repair and or change and or, and or you know, uh, and that's what we did. It's it's interesting that on 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 that film, some of them have a, a few different props, but a lot you know once again a lot of it's all the standardized stuff that w- that we always use, you know for for the uh, next generation cast. I mean one one of the props that was very specific for Nemesis was they wanted a a tricorder instead of having all the the, the red, yellow, and blue lights on it, they just wanted them all white lights. Which was kind of strange, but we were like, okay, whatever whatever you want to do, you know, it's it's not our show. When it comes to making props, I know normally, you know, you're kind of given instructions or a blueprint. Um, well, no, it's usually a, a three-quarter view drawing, and you have to go from there. You, you usually don't get any blueprints anymore. Uh, okay. Well, I, I guess my question is, do you guys get any scripts to look at at all, typically? Or is that kept, like, really hush-hush? Well, it depends. See, on a film, most of the information on, on the films I get directly from the prop master and from, uh, if, if I'm allowed to talk to the designer, and I will talk to the designer to understand more about what, what it needs to do and so on. You know, and in some cases, like, okay, what race is it? Because you can't. For, for me, working on the shows as long as I have, I want to know what race it is so that I can make the correct aesthetic choices based on the designs that the designer is currently doing. Because, you know, since since this was the Remans instead of the Romulans, there were completely different design elements uh, involved in it. So it, it kind of makes... It's kind of interesting in that regard, is that, you know, so so since it was the Remans and not the Romulans, they could go in any, in any direction they, they wanted to. Uh, and for me, in some cases, you know, their their costume was more more spectacular than the normal uh, Romulans. Yeah. 
and, and the design element was was definitely more toward you know in a different direction. So you continued working in Star Trek on all the series as well, and again, that's going to be a whole other episode if you're willing to do that with us. Um, but I do want to jump ahead because I believe you also did some work on the J.J. Abrams Star Trek film. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. On the uh, what we did for for that particular show was we were asked to come down to look at. Originally, we were looking at at possibly doing the the uh, Kelvin phaser. Uh, but that day that we came down, he had already ended up talking to um, to another group about doing it. And so we didn't end up doing that. But we did end up doing the medical tricorder uh, that they use exclusively in the in the medical lab, except for a doctor walked by one with one in the corridor at one point, as well as we also did the the med scanner, which was kind of a nod to the original series scanner. It was just much longer and had a spinny head on it. We also did the light up pads. When Uhura, you know, uh, when they, they get the word that, that there's a problem with, with the Romulans in that universe, uh, trying to destroy one of the planets, or what, I forgot what planet it was originally. There's one of the, I don't know if he was a petty officer or whoever, he's reading off names off of a, a, a clear pad, and, you know, her goes, no, I'm on your ship with you, Spock. Basic, basically, those clear pads are what we had built, as well as in the background, way in the background, you see people running around with these oddly shaped-looking pads, which they call them pads. I, I have no idea what they actually were, but they were interestingly strange. <laughs> uh, and they were just big, bulky pieces that had some flashing lights on and stuff that they wanted for just for some busy, something busy in the background. So across all the movies that you've worked on in Star Trek, what would you say is your favorite piece that you've worked on? And what would be, let's say, I don't want to say the worst, but what would be the one that caused you the most problems to, to deal with? Okay, now you're talking about in the, in the films. Though. Just the films, yep. Okay, films. I think that uh, my favorite prop was building the heroes of the um, boomerang phasers. Because of the, the, you know, once again, I, I like the, the uh, design of that nice curved handle and so on. Uh, and then, you know, a counting up of, uh, always wanted to, to try and make it have a, the force setting. And in many cases on Star Trek, they didn't want functional lights on a lot of stuff because they didn't want to, the actor to keep accidentally pushing buttons and throw out, you know, mess up continuity and so on. Uh, because that's, that's like that uh, next gen, they have the, the dust busters and then they stopped putting batteries in them because the actors kept pushing buttons on them. So they, so they got <laughs> kind of away from that. So, but as far as hardest, uh, actually on insurrection, one of the easiest things to make became the hardest thing to deliver. Now, when I say that, uh, I mean that on, the Sona pads that we had built for it, all casted fine. We had puttied them all up and everything else. 
But for some reason, the paint was just not drying. So we literally had to transport all of these pads that we had done, which was, I think, about five or ten of them, down to set and explain to the prop master that the paint, for some reason, is not drying. Because, well, first of all, it was 40 degrees outside uh, up, up where I was up, up where our shop was up in the hills at that time. And he goes, well, that's a good thing that it's 110 over here inside of, uh, you know, and it's on, on the set. Uh, and we don't need them now in, in t- for another three days. So we'll just let them dry. So that was a major, whew, thank God that happened. Uh, <laughs> I have to say that, you know, even though each show has its own problems and, and, and pitfalls, it was all fun in reality. In, 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 in the grand scheme of things, it was all fun. It was, it was nice to, uh, to work on. And, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing, it doesn't matter. Very true. So now looking ahead to modern filmmaking, modern TV shows, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on 3D printing. Is this something that you think is going to affect the prop making industry or has it already affected it? Oh, it's already affected. It's, it's, it's already been being used. The first big film that, that 3D printing was, was used on uh, was actually the first J.J. movie. Um, there, was, there was actually a 3D printer on site in the prop room where things were being designed and output, and in some cases output and cleaned up and used on set, and other cases printed, cleaned up, and then molded and copies made off of that. So in other words, using it to make the master. I personally here at my own shop, I have eight different 3D printers. Are they all the same brand? No. <laughs> uh, I have I have Zortraxes, I have uh, Wanhaus, I have Leapfrogs, I've got uh, 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 my, my first printer was an up printer, and I've got one that is a uh, 3D workbench, which prints one meter by one meter by a half meter. So it's a, it's a very large one. As long as you know what you're doing, it's a great tool. And if you're proficient at actually being able to do the files, that's great. It's when you are doing the files and you don't understand the process. The best prop makers out there who have trans- transitioned into the digital world are some of the best digital artists who, who design props. And the reason that is, is because they understand, you know, how things are built. So they, they design it how they would build it, which is fantastic. Then you don't have any problems. You put the things together, you're done, and you move on. But I can say that in, in many cases, in the amount of time that it takes someone to design something, you know, preliminary design, turn it into a 3D file, break it up into components, and then print it, 
I and many others could probably build it from scratch from a three-quarter drawing and have it ready for molding before the print is done. So is it, is it hindered us? No, not really. It, it all depends on the individual uh, customer that you're, you're, you're dealing with. Uh, but in some cases, if you're hand building one item and you're 3D printing over here, well, you're doing two jobs at the same time. So in, in many cases, you could be saving yourself a lot of time. It's and depending on how you print it will determine whether or not it's wasting your time or helping you. All right, so on that same note here in modern times, we haven't addressed it yet, but we're recording this interview now while the COVID-19 virus is still quite a big thing, and I'm thinking it's going to be for quite some time. Uh, but once Hollywood reopens, how do you think that this current situation is going to affect your business and what you do? That's a really hard thing to answer. Um, I, I think that it's it's everything is going to change on how things are done in that in many cases, you know, the, the predictions nowadays are that, you know, that it's, it's going to be around a while because it's, you know, this, this whole thing is mutating and all these other things. So there's always going to be precautions that are going to be put in place to uh, take care of this. So in many cases, uh, instead of you having, all of your crew standing at the ready, you're probably going to end up having one crew go in, do what they need to do, have another crew go in, do what they need to do, and then vacate the place, you know, the, 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 the soundstage, then bring the actors in and shoot your scene, and then once again bring everybody back in. So it's, it could be more complicated, or it could also be that some scenes are shot, you know, you know, maybe it's going to be a lot more green screen. Maybe it's going to be, you know, uh, it, it could, it could just go anywhere. It's, it's very hard to say what, what's going to happen. I imagine that, um, the third, that, that, you know, my guess is that, that some of these production companies are going to be moving out of California. Uh, and that they're going to be open, opening up in, in, you know, technically in the middle of nowhere. So there's not as many people around always. Cause you know, in the middle of a city, you've got millions of people. If you created your own, uh, studio out in, you know, I, I don't know, Alabama or out in the middle of nowhere, you, basically only have your crew and the necessities out there being involved, you know, so uh, not as many people to uh, get sick and not as many people to uh, get you sick. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way yet, in fact. Uh, so maybe Hollywood's going to move out to, like, Ohio or something like that. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think it's all going to move there. I mean, there's certain things that are there, – there's, there's certain things to be said because, once again, most of the shops are still here in L.A., there's some in Georgia, there's some in Florida, there's a, a few in like New York and so on. Um, but, you know, in reality, we're all scrambling to try and, you know, and do something some way. So, you know, for me, I, you know, I, any, any TV show or movie that, that wants me involved in it, I'm generally speaking like, sure, 
but I'm also involved in now in uh, you know doing toy prototyping and uh, you know collectibles, you know doing prototyping for collect collectible uh, products, toys, whatever, whatever you know, whatever comes through my door is kind of my attitude, in, you know, over the past you know 20 years, is that you know I just need to keep things uh, open and going, and uh, we'll we'll see what uh, what the future brings. I, I, the, the film the film business is not going to go away in any any reality. Uh, because there's always going to be, you know, some type of entertainment field that you're still going to have to have human interaction with. Very true. Now, uh, as we wrap things up here on this interview, uh, I do want to take some time to have you talk about your YouTube channel. I've referenced it a few times here today. Uh, that's called Propology. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing over there? Okay. Well, my my YouTube channel, Propology 101, uh, is basically I'm I'm taking master props and or props from my collection and other people's collection and going over how they were made, who made them, and, you know, basically trying to once again educate people and give them ideas and to inspire them, but also to give credit where credit is due. Because there's so many people in the film industry who do not get credit for the work that they've done because in many cases, uh, there are too many people on the crew to list on the on the credits pages of a lot of films. Yeah, that's what we like to do here on Trek Untold as well, is make sure the people whose voices aren't normally heard get to be heard finally. So it's cool that you're doing that. Yeah, that's that's my mission, education and, and acknowledgement. All right, so Michael, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really insightful. I'm hoping our listeners can get a lot of new information about really a side of production most of us don't even have any knowledge about. So thank you for educating us today. You're welcome. Anytime. So that was our chat with Michael Moore, master prop maker. And can you believe there's still so much more to talk about with his work? This whole episode is only about the movies, and Michael and his team have worked on so many other series that I think it's only going to be a matter of time before we revisit Mr. Moore and speak with him again. As we mentioned towards the end of this episode, Michael has a YouTube channel that I urge you to check out if you're interested in learning more about his work, want to hear some more Star Trek history that's rarely discussed, or if you want to understand the process behind making props in more detail than we went over today. We'll have links for that channel on our social media pages, of course, but all you really need to do is look up Propology 101 on YouTube, and you should see his page pop up right away. Not that long ago, he also started to do some interviews with other prop makers, so I hope he continues that, especially to make my life easier if I ever happen to speak to any of the guests he had on his show. So go check out Propology 101 if you want to learn about how everything on Trek was made, from phasers to tricorders and engineering tools and, heck, even Junja sticks. Oh, and one other side note. We joked about this week's Michael Moore not being that Michael Moore, but there actually was another Michael Moore, believe it or not, who worked in Star Trek. That Michael Moore was a hairstylist who worked on TNG, DS9, and Enterprise, and was in fact nominated for a few Emmys for his work on Star Trek. Not only this, but his son, David Moore, was a background extra on two episodes of Enterprise. But I think that's going to be for another episode of this show down the line. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We would appreciate it very much if you did. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you there. And of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash trekuntold.com 
to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. And you can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>